Hi, I'm Gary David. And I'm Adam Gamwell. Welcome to Experience by Design, the podcast where we explore experience designs of all kinds. Discussions of the military have been front and center in the news during these past weeks. You know, the invasion of Ukraine by Russia has brought into focus the reality of armed conflicts that often rage in the world, but are now doing so in ways that may feel closer to home. And during this time, there is a discussion of what role, if any, should America and the NATO forces play in this conflict. Now, for that conversation to even take place, though, there first must be those who are willing to serve in the military on a regular basis, dedicating their years, themselves, and even their lives to military service. And beyond those persons who are in active duty are their family members. And while those who serve are on deployment during regular or wartime deployment issues, others are at home trying to hold family life together. So to explore these issues and these topics, today in Experience by Design, we talked to Dr. Shelley Kimball of the Military Family Advisory Network. Shelley was the Vice President of Research and Program Evaluation at the Military Family Advisory Network and is now a Senior Lecturer and Program Coordinator at the Johns Hopkins University. And in our conversation, we talk about how she and her team use experience design principles in the evaluation of services and programs provided at MFAN. And during her time there, she was instrumental in trying to utilize and trying to build and trying to develop an experience design research framework to look at how the organization was not just delivering services, but trying to deliver experiences. And this is because central to their work is this idea that they need to treat everyone with dignity and that even though they might be getting services in their time of need, they are in fact customers and they need to be treated like any customer would be treated, if not better. Beyond the humanity in their work and beyond the importance of that mission was the fact that they also use qualitative measurement approaches to understand the meaningfulness behind these experiences and what they mean to people and how they actually have impact. Their goal in doing this work is to make sense of everything from the point of view of those who are their target audiences. And as Shelley notes, while for instance, artificial intelligence and modern language can perhaps get you 80% of the way in your analysis, you can't replace the human brain when looking at what the data means. It was a great talk about how the organization gives the military families and how military families are in need of greater support. And we were really happy to have her on. Um, and so again, thanks Shelly for joining us. And like the first question I have is, did you ever add the space force to the logo? Or the Military mm. Families Advisory <laughs> Network, because I know how inclusive you're trying to be for all yeah. branches of the military now that there's, I think, six. Right. I do need to speak with the designers about that, about adding the star. Have, have there been a lot of, a lot of, I mean, when you see something like that happen, I mean, and, and I, how does it, what do you do with it? Because I mean, military families, the military is a long tradition in America, military families, long tradition. 
then you get the Space Force and no one's quite sure what it is. And mm-hmm. their uniforms seem to be really derivative from Star Trek. <laughs> so. well, it was, it's, you know, knowing that we're used to these like hundred year old branches of the military. So to see one start, no one's really experienced that in our in our generation. And so I know I was kind of watching with fascination, like, is this how it works? Is this, is this what happens? And, but then from our perspective, military families are military families. Like we want to support everybody and, and there are families connected to the space force. So our most recent research, we added space force into the demographics and we do have families in there who've responded from space force. So they're here. How yeah. big? How big is the space force? How big is our space force right now? Oh gosh, I, it's hard to capture the number. I was trying to look it up the other day, and um, definitely in the hundreds of of service members. But it is something that's going to grow exponentially. And so, from what I understand, people from other branches can you know apply to to move over and be part of that. And and they have gotten a lot of response. And so I do, I have a friend whose husband was um, in the space force. He recently retired, but yeah, it's, it's a thing. It's real. Is, is, is the, um, we have West point, we have Annapolis. Is it, is it Starfleet Academy? <laughs> I don't know, but it will be interesting to see. <laughs> It's like home bases on the on the uh, international space station. <laughs> exactly. You know, one of the reasons why I got became fascinated with the military families advisory network was the ways in which you use experience design frameworks for all the work that you do. And so, if you could, people who might not be familiar with military families advisory network, which I wasn't at the time when when we met, could you describe a little bit about what it is and and, and what it does and and how it came into being? Sure, sure. So I've been part of the organization since its inception about eight years ago. And we started with an advisory board at the heart of building this new organization. And the advisory board is made up of um, people who are part of military families, whether they're um, military spouses, actively serving, um, veterans, veteran spouses. And we sit as a cohort for two years and um, really kind of share what life is like. And so that idea of experience-driven perspective was at the heart from the very, very beginning. I was part of the first advisory board. And as we were trying to determine our mission and our vision, um, you know, that that lived experience was so important. And what we were trying to understand at first was the support systems military families need and use. So what are they accessing? What do they love? Where might there be gaps in service? And I remember saying at one of those early meetings, well, we can't guess. I don't want to guess. And I'm a researcher. So let's start some research. And I'm a qualitative researcher. And so for me, lived experience is part of everything um, I research. I'm always tucking something um, about a qualitative method in the work that I do. So we knew also the landscape of research about military families was highly quantitative, and it remains so, especially because the DOD focuses so much on quantitative method. And so we knew two things, that we would absolutely find out what life is like among military families and what they need, but also we would have an added value to tell those stories and share all of that. Um, It's kind of side by side with what the DOD might share with quantitative figures, really to kind of illuminate um, what families are experiencing. And so that was eight years ago, and we've continued on and really grown our research portfolio, but the heart of it always is lived experience. 
Yeah. As, as an ethnographer, that, that warms my, my qualitative heart. Right? <laughs> um, and it's, I, I think so. I mean, one of the, the questions that really fascinates me around this idea, even in terms of bringing lived experiences to, to the forefront is you mentioned like the DOD and a lot of governmental and bureaucratic frameworks are very quant heavy, right? They're very quantitative mm-hmm. in terms of their approach of data collection. So I'm curious, you know, in your experience um, over the past eight years, what were some of the, like a, a, a big challenge in terms of like getting people to adopt or buy into having a qualitative approach to understanding military families? That is such a great question. And um, as I'm thinking about these years, that has been one of the things that I think I'm most proud of uh, in the work that we've done beyond, you know, really sharing true experiences of military families to spark change. This idea of qualitative method and the acceptance of it has been difficult. I think all of us who work in this method um, are always trying to explain why it's effective, how it works. Um, you know, I know in, in even in graduate school for me all those years ago, it um, I focused on qualitative method and and I felt like oh at some point you know the that boulder is going to roll down the hill. It hasn't quite, but I'm seeing such great movement. So in our experience at the Military Family Advisory Network, we really, um, I was always um, very clear about explaining our method um, in everything we do, just sharing the methodology, why we make the choices we do, and that there there is a science to this method. Um, And so I felt like an evangelist almost, constantly trying to explain why this is so important. We did some research about two and a half years ago on, and it was a very large uh, scale um, project on privatized military housing. We wanted to understand what families were experiencing um, living in military housing. And um, I put a survey out on a on a Wednesday, and it really was demographics, but then wide open um, essay response. Just tell me what it's like. What are you experiencing? Because we really were just trying to gauge um, what life was like. Within a week, we had nearly 17,000 responses and they were all qualitative. It was all of this just long storytelling. We also did interviews um, to sort of triangulate this, but that really changed the face of um, that understanding of the value of qualitative method because we found things that DOD's quantitative method missed. Mm. And they had um, the branches, DOD, the the housing companies, they had all kinds of mechanisms in place to evaluate satisfaction rates among families living in housing, but that missed the actual experience. And so being able to come forward and say, no, this is what we see. This is what is actually happening here nationally um, was a real turning point. And even in that first release of the report, we got a lot of, but what percentage of military families did you interview here? You know, that real quantitative frame. And I kept saying, even if one family is experiencing what these families are experiencing, it's too much. It was dire. It was rodents in their homes. It was their ceilings falling out. It was security issues. It was mold in their home. It was unbelievably difficult. And so to really kind of move the curtain aside and see what was actually happening in their homes and that they needed help and they needed a voice, this research gave them that. And I feel like DOD absolutely took notice. Um, We've continued on and um, always sharing the, the 
qualitative method, most recently about food insecurity among military families and the experiences they're having. And um, the DOD fields a spouse survey every two years. This year's spouse survey included qualitative questions. And so I really feel like the tides have turned at least for the DOD to recognize that lived experience is an incredibly important part of um, data collection. One of the things that was really surprising to me or awe-inspiring or made me feel bad about myself as a researcher was that when you say you had 17,000 responses within a week, you look at all you know, managing, curating, and analyzing that, and that you you looked at every single one of them. We do. I um, I have a research team, and one like rule number one of coding is we read everything. While the um, data analysis software is super helpful for organizing what you see, it does not take the place of a human brain. And so we read absolutely everything. Um, we have other people reading, and so that. And at the time, I was coding most of this by myself. So it was pretty nonstop reading of these dire circumstances with military families. And when my, even when my kids think of that time, it was me peeking over a laptop screen because I was constantly in there reading. I didn't want to miss a one. You know, they, they were so generous to share um, these incredible stories. And so I don't ever want anything to go by without our full attention. And so we read everything. Um, and then we use the data analysis software to really, uh, code and tag the themes that we're seeing, build parent topics from that. But for me, it's really the organizational system to keep track of all that stuff. But the human brain is front and center on understanding this. Is there, is there something that that you're hopeful? I really I think this is really an interesting framework to hear about, and then think of, of, of the the kind of line of inquiry that I think one of the challenges that oftentimes you know qual research faces. Uh, you know, I work in market research, and we use mm-hmm. you know big data and, and AI technology as well as humans. But one of the things that we always say every day, we're anthropologists in in, in our office, and is that um, like machine learning and AI can get you eighty percent of the way there, but you cannot replace. Um, the human brain, right? We we like we just naturally and intrinsically make the kind of connections we think through narrative and story. Machines can't do that. They might one day, but they they won't anytime soon. And so I, I think it's one of the interesting challenges of of our time is to help um, kind of pull a little bit back from the quant bias that we do see in so many organizations, and also recognizing and I think clarifying to uh, I don't know, to leadership that there is actually a big challenge in terms of the, the, to, as you're saying here, that like the time and effort required actually to do this, to code yes. data, um, inductive or abductive or, or whatever our format or method of like kind of understanding what are the themes that we're seeing takes a lot of time, mm-hmm. um, but a machine can't do it anyway. Right. And so it's a sort of convincing um, organizations that this is the way that it needs to be done. You know, so I'm curious your experience in this regard too, in terms of helping uh, show whether it is like our team is working on, these are 17,000 responses. Here's how we're doing it. Mm-hmm. You know, your qual story, my kids are seeing me pop over a laptop is, is part of that too, right? Right. Yeah. It, you know, one of the um, anecdotes I often share on this front, um, and we use Qualtrics, Text IQ. Mm. And we were beta, when I was doing that um, housing research, I was beta testing with them kind of this Text IQ and applying it to the system. And early on, it was, it would give me, First of all, it would give me sentiment values that 
um, just weren't, there should have been very little positive here. And the mm-hmm. system couldn't understand, you know, ceilings falling down, that that was negative. Um, but one of the funnier ones was I was looking at kind of the suggested themes and um, it was saying that bees, bees were a big bees um, and and worms that all of us, like there were 8,000 people with bees and, you know, 12,000 with worms. And I was like, things are bad, but bees and worms are very specific. And I just don't think it's accurate. So I went in to figure out what the system thought were bees and worms. And it was, um, the system wasn't quite right. And it thought any was, any, any form of was, was turning into worms and bin was turning into bees. And so I called the uh, engineers and they fixed it pretty quickly, but the system just can't know. It just can't always know. And so um, I've been pretty vocal on our team also within our organization that this takes time. It takes a lot of time. I always say that quantitative method, you know, in developing your instrument, you put in a lot of time, but your analysis is quicker. For a qualitative method, our time is in that analysis. It takes a very long time. And so making the commitment to that, um, and I do still feel myself um, pushing the envelope, trying to be faster to, you know, race with other organizations that are doing research. Um, And so sometimes that means we have to put more people on a project to catch the deadline for whomever. Um, And so we do a good amount of team coding which I think can be fun, you know, and just kind of sharing thoughts and ideas and and what are you seeing? And does this mean the same thing to you? Um, We have people who are both from military families and not from military families. And I think that helps us um, eliminate any bias about what we're seeing in there. Hmm. I, for one, was looking forward to the congressional hearings on bees and worms and military (laughs) family housing. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> they, there was a there was a hearing on this um, on this on, and on the bees and worms. Not well, not technically the bees and worms, but oh. all the things going on. There were a series mm-hmm. of of hearings about this, and um, we had released a preliminary preliminary report right in time for one of the first hearings. And so, um, the members of Congress in that hearing read the research, and and so they had that awareness of what real life was like walking into that hearing. It really, I feel like it changed the face of the hearing to be focused on military family experience, not so much the housing companies or the DOD. That hearing ended up being focused on families. And so for mm-hmm. me as a researcher in this area, there's nothing better. It's, you know, the point of building housing using this example is not the housing. <laughs> it's not, you mm-hmm. know, the, the metric of success shouldn't be how many houses we put up. It should be what, what are the experiences within the yeah. houses? Right. Yeah. And I think they see that now. I, I, there was, um, you know, kind of a communication gap in this system. There were a lot of things that needed to be revised. And, and, um, in the next year's NDAA, it was the largest, um, budgetary increase in housing. It was the largest section of the NDAA. They really, there was a lot of reform there. And, and it is, it is resident centric now. Hmm. I like that word resident centric because, (laughs) yeah, it's, you know, it's, Sometimes, Shelly, I get um, I, I get hopeful that these things should be obvious. <laughs> I understand <laughs> I that they're not. And I, 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 as we were discussing earlier, I'm of, I'm of enough of an age where I should know better. But yet, my youthful optimism and in, in faith in people is frequently misplaced. In mm-hmm. that, 
people don't realize it's not about the housing. It's about the people in the houses. It's not mm-hmm. about the product. It's about how usable the product is. I mean, it's, right. it goes back to people and how frequently mm-hmm. and easily, even with folks' best intentions, it's not like anybody at the DOD is looking to right. provide worms and bees or anything no, else. Exactly, exactly. It's just in the institutional bureaucracy that is qu- heavily quantitative, people get lost. Yes. I, and I, I truly believe that. I, I, I feel like um, leadership at DOD was as shocked as anybody else, as appalled as anybody else. I mean, right away, members of Congress and leadership in DOD and the services were going out to families, like literally going out to their homes to talk to them and see what was going on and be a part of the solution. And so for me, this is a, a successful story. There's still change that needs to happen. It is a long road to make this right. But I do feel like um, they've they've really accepted and, and understand now how important military families or experiences are to this system. It also makes me, you know, I just thought of this. And I don't know why, because we've talked a few times now, but like, let's say some, you know, we have this whole idea about support the troops and mm-hmm. let's say the military gets 10% discount or you get to enter the plane first, or you get this or you get that. Well, what about the family? Mm-hmm. I mean, who mm-hmm. might need the financial support as much as the person who serves in the military, if not more, because that person might be on deployment, right. getting three square meals a day, hopefully, mm-hmm. you know, provide, you know, having housing provided on base or on a ship or whatever, and the family's left behind. It's just kind of interesting now that I think about it, that you don't see like those kinds of discounts being extended to anybody who's serving any active member of the military or their family. We do get, there are some, um, you know, it's kind of divided and, and families do share kind of what organizations, what companies do provide that support for the full family. Um, and so it is out there. There are, there are great organizations that do that. But um, your question also kind of makes me think about the, the food insecurity research that we do. And we're very focused on the family and, and that observation that sometimes the service members away and it's the family that's trying to keep everything afloat um, and maybe struggling on their own. You know, we move so much. So every two to three years, active duty families move. So we don't have a community support system um, in the same way that others may. And so um, community itself supporting families is huge. It is, um, I'm finding in the food insecurity research, that's where families tell us they go for help when they're really struggling. They go to community food pantries. And so um, community support matters so much. We also look at um, loneliness and the feelings of connection with community and what that, what that may do to perceptions, even of military life. And community connection, feeling um, welcomed. And as, you know, residents, even if we're only there for a little while, has, uh, it really affects social determinants of health. Do you find people, is there is there research on re-enlistment rates and terms of people's consideration of the impact on the family? Yeah, I, and um, I'm pretty sure DOD is working on that as well. Um, we that spouse survey that the DOD works on um, has sections on intentions to continue with the military um, because the family is a big part of that decision. And so the um, qualitative questions, I hope that when they code those, they'll get a little bit more about that as well. Uh, We look at it too. We look at, you know, intentions to retire, what makes you want to leave service, when you might leave service and understanding um, how that 
fits in the construct. It's complicated, but um, but there is research out there on it. One thing I'm curious with this too. This is this is fascinating. Um, in you know looking at the website too, and just seeing the the different kinds of of areas of projects we've seen, you know, as you mentioned, food insecurity and, and you mm-hmm. know, both finances, emergency savings and loneliness. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that's such an interesting question um, around this loneliness piece for one, it's got me thinking just in terms of right, the connection to community and what does it mean for yeah families and, and, and active service members that have to move every couple of years and, and build those connections. And so seeing in qual research, like stories that I go to a food bank when I'm, when I'm low on, on food or income, mm-hmm. something that you wouldn't get from, from different kinds of, of survey work necessarily, because it right. comes from a conversation and, and sharing with people. Um, one of the, the, the things that I'm thinking about connecting with this, just so also folks, if they're, if they're less familiar with um, the, the military families network itself and the advisory network, you know, who are, I'm thinking about like, where do these, where does this research go? Like, who are the stakeholders? Who is this for? And and how do we get a sense of if, if change is taking place? You mentioned up top that we are seeing qual questions in surveys and field surveys, which is awesome now. So I'm curious too, to kind of add a little bit more to the picture of like, who, who are the stakeholders here? Um, and just noting too, that MFAN is both a nonprofit and also a registered charity, which is, which is super cool. So in, even like this framework too, of like, where do we sit in terms of bringing our research and putting it into action? That's a great question. Um, so that idea of action research to me has been something I've been looking at as well through these years, just um, where are the problems? How can we respond? And how can we make sure families are part of the um, discussion and solution? So for us, I always see this as a, a we share with all what the data that we collect, um, we are always publicly releasing, as you can see on the website, because um, I'm really also interested in how this can help others. You, It may be something as granular as a military spouse going to leadership um, in at the unit where the service member is stationed and saying, I'm hearing families have trouble with this. And look, other families have trouble with this. We've found that just that kind of reinforcement of, of it's not just one, it may be a lot of us. Um, and But it also travels up to the highest levels. So the highest levels of leadership at De- Department of Defense um, call on us to share experiences and stories and um, what we're seeing either through our advisory board or through the data we're collecting. We're working on a project right now that is highly qualitative. It's long interviews with families who are experiencing food insecurity to understand what life experiences led them here, what happened along the way to make these families struggle now. And so then the intention is to kind of back up in these stories and um, share those pain points so that all of us who provide support can be there ahead of time. And so, you know, the the DOD is is completely aware of this project and our progress and, and waiting for these results um, to inform even their own problem solving or support systems for families. And so, the um, as we find things, also there are particular members of Congress who have special interests in whether it's food insecurity among military families or um, financial readiness, whatever the support system is. And so we're always in touch with what we're doing, what we're seeing, um, what we can offer. So um, that part is really exciting to me that it can that it can go far and wide. It's usable data. Mm. But it's- 
when you talk about action research, one of the knocks on qualitative work is often that it's, you know, there's too much, it's too subjective, that we need to be more mm-hmm. objective. And I appreciate that you have non-military family members involved in the analysis, but at the same time, I mean, shouldn't there be an element of subjectivity and action orientation <laughs> in work? Because if you're looking at something that's like, like you know, financial insecurity, food insecurity, worms and bees, whatever it might be, <laughs> residential insecurity, shouldn't we look at the stories and be prompted to action versus being dispassioned observers who are just looking at it in a quote unquote neutral perspective? Because as I tell my students, neutrality is an action that mm-hmm. has an impact. So you can claim to be objective, but that doesn't absolve you from responsibility. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's, um, and that's, I think that's hard to explain. Um, especially to a very quantitative minded researcher, even my students, you know, in uh, my qualitative methods classes um, in the very beginning that sort of, well, how many and how, how, what part of the whole is that um, kind of question. And so I take it from two perspectives. I show, I use um, manifest effect sizes to show, you know, how many of those who responded to our research responded in a particular way. I find that giving some numbers about things also calms those who are quantitatively minded down. And in this area that I work in, there is such um, the quantitative method is um, really the preferred method. Um, among, uh, you know, DOD and leadership that giving a little bit of an idea of what part of the whole answered in this way helps, I think, them see, okay, it, it gives them something to hang on to that they might understand so that then we can pull them in with all of the rest. However, you know, for Military Family Advisory Network, this idea of finding the ways families need support and being active in responding, of course, you know, when we see anybody struggling, we need to be there to help them out. Um, And this housing research was a perfect example of that. It was sort of like, you have to stop thinking about what percentage of all military families are experiencing this. And you have to look at the fact that there are thousands and thousands of families who are living in these horrible circumstances and we need to help. And so working in the organization I do, it gives me the best of both worlds that we can do this uh, method a lot in a methodologically sound way, but then we can also work with a lot of people to find the solutions and the help that families need. That's, I think one of the, the, the really positive takeaways I'm, I'm hearing from this is that it is also just this broad recognition that we are building connections between researchers and organizations and where we can actually plug in and, and uh, be able to apply the work. Cause you know, the, you know, I think we, we were, we're may have a, a sample size of three here and that we're biased that we, that we <laughs> think it's not very, you know, that it requires of course, um, interpretation on any level of research, right? Quantum data needs to be interpreted too. It's yes. not magically actionable just because right. we have 35% of people want X, Y, Z or have an issue here. Um, yet we, we tend to like say, oh, it's a hard set of information and that therefore it's useful. But, you know, again, we can, we can dig into it if we wanted to, but like the, the numbers have their own squish to them too, right? In terms of mm-hmm. like how and where they're designed and fit and like what a survey even asks will depend on what kind of answers we get. And, and all that I think is fundamentally important. So it's, it's great to then also hear how you you think and work across the pipeline. So it's it's it is about the methods and the the collection format, but that gives us the way to then share the narrative with those that may be more quant biased or a little kind of nervous that qual won't won't is too subjective. 
because it is also about this, right? It is about this, the, how do we tell the story of the people that we are, that we're learning with in, in, in alongside. And so, um, this is something else that's, I'm, I'm, I'm getting a takeaway and I'm curious to get your experience of too, is, is this process of how, you know, what are some of the, the, the elements you've learned from doing this work and, and even in your future work too, that you're, you're, you're looking to apply is how do we make sure that we're telling stories in a way that help get this, the, the messages across. Right. And so I think one thing I hear you saying already is that it's, it's really knowing your audience, right? We're knowing who we're delivering this to. We know yeah. there might be a quant bias. Let's <laughs> tell the story in a way that gives those the backup we've got, here's your percentage, but here's the deep part. And so, so I'd love to hear more about this, this element of storytelling that goes into uh, socializing the research. We, we right. might say. I've always been a huge, huge proponent of um, being as clear as possible on your methods section of anything you do. So even in um, white papers or the reports you see on our website that are really more for um, public consumption, you'll always see a clear method section because I think people can learn from that, but also it helps you understand how this information came to be. Um, we've been, you know, in this qualitative project with those who are food insecure, really using the constant comparative method as well. Going back and saying, well, wait a minute, if if they're explaining X, let's go back and check on Y and, and kind of that in and out. It's one of those things that makes me nervous in quantitative method that you, you send out your instrument and it doesn't change. In qualitative method, for me to make sure I'm learning and understanding all of the pieces and parts, I need to be able to go back um, and revisit. Maybe we're not asking this right um, mm. because these are not my experiences. I'm the conduit of the story um, that, and I need to make sure I understand it as clearly and accurately as possible. So for us to be able to go back in the field and then come out as a team and talk about what did you hear? What did you see? Are we saying even the words correctly? And then going back in. And so I also see this as kind of a partnership with our, with our respondents that um, they're teaching us so much about this world. And so then it's our job to tell that story in a way that's um, accurate, but that uh, people can really understand and absorb. This particular research that we're working on, we have a lot of requests for, um, you know, when's it coming out? Because um, people really want to know the answer to this. And so I think this is going to be an interesting one as we tell this story because it has a lot of uses, you know, with the USDA, with the DOD, um, but then with other organizations that support military families thinking in this line of story, what happened to these families? Where can I plug in? What can I do to support? And so I'm really looking forward to these results. One of the things that... Um that I think you're really explaining really well, that this is something I always push with my students, is that there's a difference between qualitative research and ethnographic research. Because what you're mm -hmm. describing to me is the, the definition of ethnographic research. We're trying to bring people into the lived experiences and lives of this particular group of people and communicate in a way so that's understandable to outside audiences, right? Mm -hmm. End of sentence. Right. Versus, it may, I tell students when they're like, what's the difference between field methods and ethnography? I'm like, well, you can do qualitative work and have it not be ethnographic <laughs> and you can do quantitative work and have it be ethnographic. Mm -hmm. I mean, the ethnography is not a method. It's a goal. Right. <laughs> right. You know? And this is what you're, I mean, I just love this definition and I'm definitely going to make this uh, episode required listening for all my ethnography oh. and qualitative. <laughs> it's mandatory, 
mandatory <laughs> listening. So if you're listening to this right now, this is why you, you have to be listening right. to this. <laughs> Because it is the definition, right? It's the lived mm-hmm. experiences, you know, to put an right. academic term on it, it's a phenomenological approach to understanding people's worlds. Right, right. I don't know. I use um, Street Corner Society in my course, yeah. graduate uh, qualitative methods class. And I, for me, in my own studies early on, that was the light bulb moment was mm. this understanding this community in such a granular way. And to be frank, I'm kind of a nosy person generally. Like I like to know what's going on with people. I was a newspaper reporter. And so this just is right in my wheelhouse. Um, And so this kind of um, understanding the experiences of food insecurity or understanding what's happening in military families' homes, it always brings me back to street corner. Like, what do I need to know to help people understand what life is like here? What is it like to be the one living here and to share that story forward? And how can we make that meaningful? Um, And then, of course, for us in our organization, how can that spark change? Well, that that you were a journalist before is the reason why you can write in a clear way. I mean, if you were an <laughs> academic before, I mean, no one would be able to know what, what, what you're talking about. And I hope that I, I, going I did forward, you don't lose that. In graduate school, um, that I was because I was a journalist first and then went to graduate school. And and um, it was there was a lot of push pull on my writing style. It was too clear. <laughs> It was too short and sweet. (laughs) No, I actually, one time I had a review from a journal who said, we can't accept this because it's too accessible to a lay audience. I'm like, yeah, you wouldn't want to do. Oh my gosh. That's terrible. That's terrible. I thought so. We really, in in the um, research reports that we produce, I'm always saying, uh, keep a chatty voice, make it sound Mm. like you're explaining it to somebody because that's how um, they'll come right in and, and join in with us. I am a firm believer in that. Yeah. That, that's one of the, the elements too, that um, I found that I enjoy. It's, it's interesting that I more and more. Um, so I finished, I finished um, PhD in 2018 and taught for a number of years between like during while well, finishing it. And then also for a few years afterwards, um, it will always be an education in some level. And, and, you know, um, I love doing, you know, lectures for, for classes and, and, um, elements like this, but it's funny, my writing has totally shifted, uh, that, you know, it's, it's hyper conversational now. And it's interesting that like, it doesn't register, um, in academic context, I find, um, and, but it's, it's, it's been this interesting process to kind of see then what does it mean to then have to tell these stories in very quick ways, right. And, and, mm-hmm. and that would almost be conversational. It might also be the fault of podcasting, but it's like, even the way that I, I find I tend to right now is that it's actually as if I'm speaking, mm-hmm. um, you know, and this was, this was born out of the idea of doing conferences, um, academic conferences and, and falling asleep when somebody is reading a paper, just straight up reading, like what should not yes. be spoken <laughs> or written, but especially or, or spoken. Or written, or written, <laughs> right? Um, and so I, but I think that like it's, it's, it's interesting and it's such an important piece also to recognize this, like it, it's, how are we telling that story? And, 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 you know, again, who is, who's it for also? Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm curious too, like, I, I love a referencing like street corner society is a, it's like a great, like they have these classic works that help us say, what is life like yes. for, the, for these, these groups of people? Um, and also maybe because I'm looking now, this is, this is published in 1943 by, by William White for folks yeah. that don't know the book. 
something happened in the 60s and 70s where we stopped writing so clearly, I think, um, across social sciences, I found. Um, and so there is something about this too, in terms of like, there actually is a value of going back to the kind of the classic writings um, to kind of see and get a sense of what are, what is, what are some of the basis is that we might even think of for, for what that looks like today. Obviously we write with different cadences, mm-hmm. um, today, but nonetheless, there is something about certain kinds of writing and stories and the ways that communicate that, that connect more deeply. And so I think that that's such an important part too. Um, and so I'm just going to, uh, ask this question. And if you don't want to talk about where you're going to Johns Hopkins, we can take <laughs> this part out, uh, but you can let me know now, but I'm, I'm just curious in terms it's of if we go. Okay, cool. So as, as we go forward into into teaching, so you're, you're um, congratulations, you're, you're moving into a full time teaching role, which is which is super exciting. Um, and so I'm curious, like, what are we like, what are we taking from all of this, right? And then it could, how are we going to uh, um, move this into this space in terms of it, it is an academic space again, mm-hmm. kind of at least. Yeah. Well, we're entirely. <laughs> what might that look like for you? What are you hopeful for in that space? The well, I'm super excited to go to Johns Hopkins because um, the department in which I am I am I am joining has um, a lot of classes on using research, applying research, research and writing, research in nonprofits, and um, it's a communications department. So I'm also using the other side of my life, um, mm-hmm. my other research areas. But one of the greatest lessons I've learned through these years is uh, the value of applied research. I came into this job at Military Family Advisory Network really from that academic perspective and recognizing early that the way I needed to communicate this research was not the way you would for a peer-reviewed journal. And that's okay. It's fine because of the uses. But one of the things that has been absolutely eye-opening to me in this work is how quickly change can come with applied research. I still do peer-reviewed research, and it is a slog getting that research Mm. into the system, having it reviewed, and waiting for publication. Then who actually accesses that, and is it the the change makers who Mm. access that? Maybe, maybe not. In this applied research, um, we really can funnel the findings very quickly to those who can make a difference um, in po- whether it's policy stakeholders, whether it's you know even our or- own organization and our programmatic choices. And so for me, I see this as two sides of the research world, and it just depends on where you want to be and how you want to work it. But I look forward to sharing the differences in research and how to make it move and become mm-hmm. actionable um, and accessible to those who could use it. One of the interesting things about William Foote White, you know, who wrote Street Corner Society, is also was a primary developer of participatory action research, mm-hmm. right? And uh, doing it in organizations, especially. And, you know, if I was going to rant and we met at the Association for Applied and Clinical Sociology when I was putting on the conference, I will not rant about sociology because it's still early in the day and I'm trying to maintain a positive mood. But the idea of taking the very getting so close to people's lives, mm-hmm. getting these intimate understandings of their worlds, and then taking the very spirit and soul of that data and throwing it out in order to accomplish some idealized notion of what legitimate work should be like. Which then results in, in you know, which, which then we translate into it. I said I wasn't going to ramp, but I am. Which we then translate into impact, solely measured by how many other people who aren't doing mm-hmm. anything with it are reading it. 
it's yeah i understand that um frustration and so for me i've just tried to find creative ways to um circumvent where how we measure success my personal measure of success is not necessarily the number of citations of my work it is the number of people affected or how we can enlighten others on these lived experiences um earlier in my career um in my legal research i've always done mixed method legal research and pulled in people's experiences to evaluate how the law um, is affecting them and how the law is working in real life i still do that kind of work on the side not as much as i do this other um but i do feel that sense of frustration in um let, i just showed you what's happening right. to families what's happening to people now what are you going to do how, how can you help and so um it has been used um, in change making, but not as quickly as this applied research. And so I think also for me, my personal perspective is that when I have that kind of research that I think would be helpful to someone making change or who could make change, I'm just gonna have to bring it to them. I don't mm -hmm. think we can count on people tracking the journals um, when they're you know, in leadership, right. it, it, members of Congress, something like that. One of the things that was, that I, that I really got drawn to when I heard your, your talk at the conference was, you know, the, one of the measures of success that you're using was net promoter score. And this was for yeah. the food insecurity. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And so the idea, and this is like a really important, subtle point, or maybe not so subtle that when people would come for food, right. They needed food. You provide, you know, mm -hmm. your program was providing food. You would give them an evaluation to evaluate their experience using yeah. your promoter score and a zero a scale from zero to 10, how likely are you to recommend? Right. And it mm -hmm. really did transform the notion of what's happening. We're mm -hmm. not, you know, they're not getting a handout. We're serving them as customers. Yes. And yes. they are, we're the, we're, we need to please them. They shouldn't be we're grateful beholden. for us. Yes. We're beholden. Right. And we want to, well, two reasons we use that. First of all, um, because I don't trust sentiment analysis in software. I just don't because right. it, it is such a personal experience for someone. And the net promoter score is a really nice quick way that someone can tell me what they think. Um, and so then we can use that score to help us understand sentiment um, and, and their personal experience. And so um, the other reason is because within military families, word of mouth is gold. This is how families find the support they need. They they hear from other military families about, you know, what's the best dentist? What's the best pediatrician? Um, where should I live? What schools should my kids go to? We do this all the time. And this is how we get into a community really quickly. And so knowing that word of mouth is so important to this um, particular population, um, knowing, would you recommend us? Would, did we do a good enough job for you that you would recommend us? Um, and we find at these food events that our net promoter score is super high. Um, and part of it is because we've built these events that are really fun. So we try to eliminate the stigma of seeking assistance and really you know, thanking every person for showing up. We have people who are directing traffic and dancing in the street. We um, have P 
people who are just joyful to be serving. And so, um, and also really protective of these families that they, um, it's a drive-through event um, for COVID reasons, but what we found was also it gave them privacy as they're coming through to receive services. The stigma for seeking help among military families is incredible. We have a culture of resiliency that is really difficult to overcome, and and this is working. And they're telling us it's working through these net promoter scores. And of course, I don't only ask net promoter. You know, we have right. a lot of qualitative questions built in there as well, and and we're talking um, every step of the way with the families as they move through the process. So. Very similar to the housing, you know, the, the idea that one of the one of the metrics of success can be how much food did we deliver, but it's not the only metric of success yes. because there's an experiential element to it that you're also mm-hmm. considering. And you might be delivering a lot of food, but if the experience isn't being rated high or highly, then mm-hmm. we're failing. We're failing right. the people who are trying to serve. Well, they won't come back. They won't seek right. assistance. And what we're trying to do is help people... Um, see that it's okay. We find um, consistency consistently in this research that military families don't seek assistance as often as they should. So while they may be high on the USDA's six-item short-form food insecurity scale, when we ask them qualitatively, what, do you, what happens? What, what's going on when you experience this? We have a lot of people remaining hungry. Well, it shouldn't be that way. And so um, we're really working on understanding what those obstacles are, what in, in the qualitative interviews, we're asking questions like that. What, what would stop you from seeking help? Uh, what obstacles might you have faced so that um, we can use that real lived experience to overcome that part of the issue? And I think that that's, that's so valuable too, because uh, you know, it's it's helps us not jump to it's a technical solution. This is how we have to solve it through some technical means. It's actually an experiential problem, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, it is like the, it it is stigma. It's that I don't want to be seen needing help, right? right? Or what is that experience like if I go do that? Is it is it actually a positive experience? And um, so it isn't a distribution problem by itself in terms of food mm-hmm. not getting to people, right? But it is also it's very it's deeply social, in implicit often, right? And so this is this is I think. Um, I find this very powerful to to hear because it is like this is what what is actually needed to solve these kinds of human problems, right? Is understanding where are humans in the equation? Like, what does yes. it feel like to be in the situations? Why yeah. is there stigma? What does stigma mean? How do we overcome that? Um, and even this idea that there's an element of privacy through drive-throughs, I would not have thought of that before you said that, and that's really interesting because mm-hmm. it gives you a bit of like you can shield a little bit because you're in your car, yeah. right? Um, that's super powerful. That that's just a, a nugget right there that I'm like, all right, I, I now I have this new found respect for drive-through social engagements. Right. It's, it's funny because, you know, being on the scene, we, uh, the staff at MFAN, we all serve at these events as well. And I always ask to be a greeter and the person signing people in and registering so that I have contact with everybody, that I can talk to them, that um, I can mm. check in on them. Um, I, I tend to be a pretty maternal person also. And so for me, this is like the, come on in, let me help you. Um, but some days, sometimes you'll see people um, where, you know, the way the cars turn, they they can... Um, see kind of across lanes where they'll roll down the windows and yell out and see their friends across the way. And I feel like when they do that, that's success because it's not about stigma. It's about, Hey, you're here too. Look, I'm here and we're happy to be here. And this is fun. And 
our trunk is going to get full and our families are going to be fed. And I mean, that is the highest achievement, I think, is that you have families seek assistance when they need it in a joyful, um, confident way. Hmm. I, I love this, just this, this little tag there. It's not, not even little, but right. It's, it's the success is not only that, that families are seeking and getting aid, but they're doing it in, in a way that feels joyful. Like, I love the fact it's like, you know, let's, let's be and stay human here people. And like, yeah. let's, let's joy. It's okay. That joy is part of our goal for mm-hmm. having a positive experience with this. Right. I, I love that. And then how do we capture that joy. joy? And you can, you know, capture the joy, not just in a computer algorithm, trying to do sentiment analysis. <laughs> Coded joy. Yeah. Right. Coded yes. joy. <laughs> well, we, you know, hashtag joy. Hashtag, hashtag joy. Um, but also just, you know, being there, and you don't necessarily need an N of a hundred. That one story that you just told, right, is mm-hmm. pretty powerful as a representation of the kind of experiences that people can have. And and it's mm-hmm. not an either or. It's a why not both. So if, sure, right. if you want to have this, you know, the the you know, we have seventeen thousand. We can quant- we can code quantitatively how many times people say worms and bees, right, or not, <laughs> um, right. Or we can actually go there and we can also, not not or, but, and we can also go there and see Mm -hmm. what's going on and we can have people sit on the board and we can, yes, and, Mm -hmm. and just multi-methodological approach, Mm -hmm. you know, which again, is ethnographic and not just, you know, the the, the methodology wars of quant versus qual, but it's, you know, what's the, what, what what tools can we use? Mm -hmm. You know, you can't build a house with a hammer alone. You need other tools as well. I'm a firm believer in that. I think that um, when you pull a variety of methods together, you're using the superpowers, the greatest parts of each to get where you need to be. Um, so even when I'm teaching qualitative method, I, I am not criticizing, criticizing quantitative because there is a place for it. Um, I just find that qualitative gets me where I need to be. Which is where the people are. Yeah. <laughs> that's exactly. what, and as a journalist, there's that old feeling of, I gotta, I gotta get to the people. I gotta, yep. it's hard to be a journalist on the phone. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Back in the day, um, I had an editor who insisted on shoe leather journalism and that meant mm. leave the office, get out, go well, talk you to me. You can't say that anymore. Cause someone might be vegan. Right. <laughs> and you have to, you have to think about the sensitivity of things like shoe leather. So we might have to say, you know, shoe pleather, <laughs> shoe, shoe rubber. Yeah. Yeah. What if I don't like wearing shoes? Well, I don't know that. I mean, I can't be helpful there. Just get out of the office. Just go, just go or talk or to go, some people. Yeah, go outside. Yeah. Just go outside. Right. <laughs> Let's just go outside. But it's, it's, and I think, you know, shoe leather sociology or anthropology as well. And it's, and, you know, as we wrap up here, one of the things I do wonder is, you know, to what extent can this be taught? I do think mm-hmm. it can, but to what extent is it also just a personality trait of whether you're voyeuristic, curious, right. <laughs> you know, um, you know, you grew up feeling alone. So you grew up watching people. I mean, like, what is the alchemy that produces mm-hmm. good ethnographers to really be driven to want to explore people's lives and then mm-hmm. have the skills to do it because so much of the work is about building relationships. Right. Yeah. I think that you, at a minimum, that deep curiosity of lived experience among any population is absolutely essential. 
Yeah, I'm just writing that down so I can steal it. Um, <laughs> yeah, we're like, hey, great tagline. Love yeah, it. That's great. No, that's, that's, that's exactly what the podcast <laughs> is going to be called right so now. You can come back. <laughs> Deep curiosity, lived experience by any population, record, experienced by design. Mm-hmm. I, I made that up. Awesome. It was great. <laughs> no. We'll cut that from the tape so I can take it. No, I think it's yeah, exactly is this, right. is this revisionist history or <laughs> yeah, it is. I'm just gonna cut that because I can edit that out. No, I think that you know you gotta you gotta be interested in people. Yeah. And to be a journalist, to be an ethnographer, you gotta be interested in people and you gotta be one you gotta wanna be where the people are. Yeah. Whether it's customer experience, patient experience, employee experience, user experience, mm-hmm. you know, community experience, military experience. The experience is about it's that phenomenology. It's Absolutely. about the lived experiences of those who are engaged in the site where you're interested in exploring. Mm-hmm. And how do we get there um, in the multiplicity of ways that we have? Mm-hmm. Right to get at that thing, and that's why that's why I loved your when you were giving your talk about your work. I was just like, that's that's incredible. That's amazing. And it's going to be cool to see what happens at the next iteration. Are you staying? Yeah. Are you staying involved with MFAN? You- yeah, I um, well, for the time being, just to help with the transition. But I will always be, you know, a cheerleader on the sides to make sure that um, and knowing that they'll be doing great things. And even if even if your family member is no longer serving in the military, will you always remain a military family in that in you a certain do. sense? It's the truth. Um, my husband is uh, retired about two years ago uh, after 28 years in the Coast Guard. My dad was um, a career military. I'm a military kid. My brother was in the military. And this community, you never lose that identity. It just changes um, through the years. But I really believe once a military family, always a military family. And that includes the Space Force. Yes. Yes. They're part of us now. They're we part of all of us. We have embraced it. We have, they, bring them all in. Everyone come yes. on in, be part of the military family. I think it's remarkable and it's such great work and it's such a great framework for experience design. I really appreciate you sharing the stories and your approaches and the lessons learned and the, and the recommendations and ideas that you're sharing. Thank you. Thank you. This is a really fun conversation. Thanks for having me. So we want to thank Dr. Shelley Kimball, formerly of the Military Family Advisory Network and now of the Johns Hopkins University for talking with us about experience design and supporting military families. You can learn more about the advisory network and how to support their work along with how to see the work that Shelley is doing in the links to our show notes. And so we're curious to hop in the conversation with you as well. How do you manage qualitative data in your organization? What other services are prime to be made into experiences that we can then think through build new products and services and solutions for? And how can we better support military families? Shoot us a message over at feedback at experiencexdesign.com or visit us on our LinkedIn page. And as always, thank you for your continued support for the podcast and make sure, please make sure, we always love hearing from you to keep your contributions, your ideas, and your financial support coming to the podcast. And you can always make a contribution, support the cost of the podcast through our website, Head over to experiencexdesign.com and you will see a link to buy us a coffee. And also, if you'd like to sponsor a future episode of VXD, make sure to send us a message so we can talk about that. And if you have any other feedback, ideas, and solutions, make sure to send them to feedback at experiencexdesign.com. And you can always subscribe to the podcast to get the newest news and be part of the EXD community at our website. And with that, Be happy, be healthy, be safe, be well, and be here for the next experience by design.